Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick K. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now today, I have a really cool episode. I'm excited about this one. It is all about the dream that some people have, I think many of us have, the dream of writing a book. Everybody thinks they have a book in them, and many people do, and it's kind of a thing that people talk about, but how many people actually sit down and write that book and then go off and get it published? Not that many, having been through it myself. It is a long, painful process full of rejection. It's a lot of fun too, but it's just kind of like one of those things that just takes a long time, and even if you work at it really hard, the chances of actually getting something published aren't that high. And so that's why I wanted to have on some real people who got their book published and they did it in a really unconventional way. My guests today are Danielle Mafood and Jenny Judson. Now, Danielle works in corporate America. Jenny is a teacher and they are friends from high school and they wrote a book together, a book called The Last Season, which is historical fiction about the Victorian age. Now, it took them 11 years, and it's funny because I actually know them in, you know, in real life, as it were. So these are people that I've been socializing with for years. And when I met them, I, it was at a wedding. They told me they were writing this book. And at that point, I had not gotten on that path. And so I was really like, wow, I want to write a book. And, and so I remember feeling the FOMO. And then I started that whole process. And so then I was kind of talking to them about my process, and we would just go back and forth. And they eventually did it, 11 years total and they did something really special because they came up with an idea, they executed on it, they did it with their best friend, and they made it happen over 11 years. And so anybody who wants to write a book, I think there's a lot of wisdom here, but this could be for anything. The wisdom that they have could be for starting a company, it could be for doing some creative sort of project or endeavor. I mean, you can really apply it to anything in the nonprofit world, anything. So here's what you're going to learn today. You're going to get some good insight from people who don't do this full-time about how to get started and how to find inspiration. You're also going to hear something about the process of getting a book from idea to bookstore. We're not going to go super deep because not everybody wants to know all the dirty details, but we will get into it and we'll especially talk about how to deal with rejection. And finally, we're going to really focus on how you undertake a creative endeavor when you have a day job and why doing it with your friend can actually be really helpful in terms of the accountability. Now, my small ask is this, as somebody who wrote two books and uh, knows how much pain 
but joy they can bring to an author. I would love it if you haven't checked those out in the past. Go check them out. My two books are The 10% Entrepreneur, which is really a lot about what we're going to talk about in this interview today. And the other one is Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice, which is just, you know, it's like the FOMO Sapiens podcast, but in book form with just even more goodness. So go check those out anywhere online. They're all over the place. And if you like the sound of my voice, I actually read the FOMO book. All right, and now on to the interview. So, as you know, I have a favorite question that I like to start every interview with. And so I started this conversation with that question by asking Jenny, what's the most important decision that you've had to make to get to where you are today? In terms of the book, it was just to do it um, and to stick with it. I think that along the way, there were a lot of times where we might have not done it and not gone forward, but stick to just stick with it even when it's hard. We'll get into that in detail in this conversation. But before we do, I just want to get into, I mean, writing a book, it's something that is a lot of work. You guys spent 11 years on this thing. You have many different things you could have done. You could have, you know, collaborated a million ways. You could have started a company, but you chose to write a book together. Why did you do it? It was actually, it's, it's been a long time in coming. We started talking about it in many ways in high school. And it was a little bit of a joke in high school because we both loved romantic novels and historical fiction. And so did our friends. And um, in class, when we were bored, um, we'd write these little kind of faux romantic scenes for one another as if they were from a novel and they would feature us or our friends and the person we had a crush on. <laughs> and um, these things kind of took on a life of their own. So we sort of dreamed of, of writing a book. Danielle said, you should write a book. And I, in, in my yearbook, I dedicated to Danielle. I said, I'll, I'll dedicate the first trashy book to you. Um, that was the start of it really. And then uh, it became a reality many years later. We were in New York. We went uh, one rainy Sunday to watch The Young Victoria and we came out of the theater. And I just said to Jenny, we're going to write this book. And we went right to Barnes & Noble. We started our research from then. We were really inspired by the Victorian period because we felt that there weren't a lot of historical novels set in that period at the time. And so between the Victorian period and the financial crisis um, uh, that we were currently in, or rather coming out of, because this was in 2009, uh, we were inspired to uh, write a book. And that's that's where it began. So we got back to our respective apartments and Jenny called me five minutes later and said, I have, I have the idea. I'm going to start writing. Find me a financial crisis set in the mid-Victorian period. And I went and researched it. And um, that's where it all began. It's such a... <laughs> I mean, I remember when you first told me, I think we were at a wedding. I mean, this was years ago and you and you told me you were working on this book and it was about a, f a financial crisis during the Victorian period. And you sort of think to yourself like, wow, that's really cool because probably nobody's written that book. But then also you're like, wow, <laughs> like that is a, something I've never even thought about. So you decided to do this. I mean, how much I, when you write historical fiction, like how much of it is invention versus how much of it is like doing research to write a book like that? You have to start with the research, right? Um, you have to understand sort of, you have the story, the idea for the story, but then when you, 
you really have to lay out your research and understand, okay, so this is the period. Um, this is the setting. This is where we are. This is where the characters are. This is what they do. This is what they could do. This is what their house looks like. All of that really has to be said in the research. Um, but then the story kind of takes a mind of its own. Yeah, we had, even at the very beginning, a sense of the arc of the story. But in order to make it feel real, even for us as writers, we had to have visuals. We had to be able to sort of see the house and um, smell the the smells on the street and all of that. And that was that took research. We found um, letters written from the time period and um, just a ton of documents. There's actually a lot of material out there from the Victorian era, particularly the sort of mid to late Victorian era. So we were able to really kind of put ourselves there. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is there are movies and TV shows and all these things that are set during that time. Like Daisy Goodwin wrote the book Victoria, and then there was the show, although that came out deep into our yes. writing process. But there's enough of that that you're like, oh, that that's atmospheric. I can feel it. I can be there. I even found once a prospectus from like a financial circular from that time online. Um, and it was for, you know, one of the central investments in the book. And it was amazing to read all these years later, what they were actually writing to try to sell something. Was- <laughs> yeah. It's like, even back then people were writing terrible prospectuses to get people to put their money into terrible things. Right. Like he's like, it's like yeah. well, <laughs> nothing changes. It's, <laughs> it's funny because you talk about writing fiction and I, I tried to write fiction. In fact, before I wrote nonfiction, I tried to write fiction. And I wrote, what is a terribly bad, unfinished book that was disorganized because I can't do timelines and I don't like to do any of the outlining. So when you're talking about this, I, I can only imagine how much it took to get it together. And I also love the fact that you decided to do this in high school because my high school yearbook and my what I will do, you know, sort of my aspiration, I was, I was not a humble 18-year-old. I put, I will write a book about the fabulous life I will lead, which is so, (laughs) so bad. So bad. That's amazing. Yeah. Sorry, Sanford High class of 1994. I was, that was very extra, but, but, uh, you decide to write the book. Okay. So I can imagine when you decide to do this, okay, it's unconventional, right? You're just like, okay, we are, you know, one person works in the business world. Another person's a teacher. You're doing it together. You're busy, you have your day jobs, and you decide to write this book. I have to imagine that a lot of people didn't take you seriously, right? And so how did that feel when you're doing this? And I imagine it's discouraging. You sort of like, especially because you took 11 years, you're probably like, I sometimes just want to quit. So talk about how you kept going despite all of the doubters. Yeah. Uh, great, great question. I mean, I think I want to start with like the the first doubter, which is like myself. <laughs> and I think that I it, it took me a while to really take it seriously. Like it was always it was always like half a joke and half a dream. Right? There was a little bit of the blend. And I think I had a lot of self-doubt about it. I probably would have stopped many times along the way if Danielle hadn't been so positive about it and so much of a sort of driver for the project saying we're going to do it. Yeah. I mean, so for me, it was not a joke, but a dream. And I, whenever I take on a project, I want to get it done. Like that is, I am at my core, a project manager (laughs) and I want to get it done. And so even though this was a very lofty goal, I I felt 
like we could finish the book. Whether or not it would get sold, I wasn't sure, but I wanted to finish the book. And so, you know, we actually had uh, two, well, a a very good friend and my brother read the first 70 pages of the book. So I think it's important to get validation as you go all the way through with people who know what they're doing. And I would say my brother at the time had written a couple of screenplays. None of them had ever been produced or, you know, optioned, but he knew more about creative elements than I did. And and then our other friend who's just loves the genre, we had them read it and they both basically had the same perspective, which was started out really slow. And I'm not sure if you want to do those first 20 pages, but by the time I got through it, oh, I got excited. And, and so we just listened to the advice we got from people. And, and that's what we did really the whole way through. I mean, that was the first point, but then Kind of at the end of the journey of the book, we actually hired a book doctor, which is somebody who reads your, you, you pay to critique, you just basically give you advice on, on a book. And that was another big point of validation, which led to all those edits, which took us so many years to get through. <laughs> but, but, but really, um, I think the most important thing is believing in what you're doing. Yeah. And then also um, getting people to, you know, check you along the way and give you advice and critiques along the way. Yeah. I think you got to get a few people. It's funny. I early on when I was trying to sell 10% entrepreneur, I had a book uh, proposal and a friend of mine knew this guy called Lars Croyer, who was a, a financial author and he showed it to Lars and Lars is also a, um, we, you know, he also went to HBS. And so he did a call with me and he gave me some really frank feedback and that feedback, because he'd been through it, right? He'd been a business person and wrote some business books. And so he had, he knew like the market and where it stood. And when he gave me that feedback, it was so instrumental. It changed everything from that day forward. And he also told me some like practical advice for which any writer should know, which is you could spend an entire day writing one page. And then the next day when you read it, you think it's terrible. And you're like, you thought it was so good at 7 p.m. or 11 or whatever that is. And then the next morning you're like, wow. I'm a terrible writer and this is complete trash. And so it's the kind of stuff like that, but it it is, you know, you don't want to do it overboard and have 40 people read your book, but getting a couple of trusted people who you think have good judgment can really make a difference. Now you guys, um, you know, you, you actually, as I recall, you got an agent pretty quickly, but then, you know, the process of actually getting a book published is like, it's just a lot of rejection. Like, I don't know any writer who just, I mean, I got rejected 33 times on my first book. It was my, my agent didn't tell me that till after we sold it, which was helpful because otherwise I would have been extraordinarily traumatized. I'm wondering how, you know, in a way, I guess like you, you're like, well, yeah, we have career. So like if this doesn't happen, but you've invested a lot of time into it. So how did you deal with the rejection as you went through the process? So I guess I'll start here. I think that the agent, our agent did a great job of, as you're saying, preventing us from all the real facts, essentially. I mean, she would come to us at points and say, okay, I'm submitting it to another four publishing houses and another four. And she said, she did this in groups. And so I think what was interesting was a lot of the feedback we got was no, but I liked it, which for me was personally was, okay, at least someone liked Mm -hmm. it. I mean, I think my expectations were so low going in um, because, like you said, we have careers. We had, I mean, this was this was our small sliver of life that we were doing for fun. And so, um, but look, I mean, it's never fun to, you know, be waiting nine months. I think it was almost a year and, you know, we hadn't heard anything. And then we that, that, that moment finally happened. Yeah, I think we, I mean, to tell you the truth, hearing you say there were 33 rejections, 
I'm not entirely sure we know how many rejections we got. The ones that we do know, um, the the large majority of them, we got some feedback from them. And that was actually, it, it was both, it was disappointing and heartening at the same time. And the heartening part, I think, was that we're like, these people actually read it. Like they had some specifics that we were like, whoa, they read that? Okay, well, at least someone's reading it. And um, they, they liked it wasn't for them. So it wasn't a real crushing blow each time. I think we felt like we were being taken seriously, but not getting very far. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And, and I had the same experience. And it's like anything. I mean, and for those of you who are entrepreneurs who are listening, or if you want to be an author, sort of like, even though you may get rejected, there are angels out there in the world who actually take the time to look at what you're making, whether it's, you know, a book or a pitch deck or whatever. And those people give you feedback. And that can be, I mean, I remember the first concept, 10% Entrepreneur, all those 33 rejections, a couple of people came back and gave us like really specific feedback. And that was the impetus to rewrite the proposal into something that we ended up doing, or I guess I ended up doing. I always, it's a team, it's a team process because you have all these people who help you. But, but it is like, you know, it's something to think about when people ask for your feedback, can you give them actionable feedback that they may may be able to use to come back to you in the future or to do something? I mean, people will remember that. And it's just a good way to operate uh, no matter which side of the equation you're on. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. Now, you guys, I mean, as we mentioned before, 11 years uh, <laughs> so crazy. Like there's some kid who got, like was born the week you started writing. Who's like, who's like getting a, getting your first checking account or something right now. It's, it's, just, it's absolutely insane. And so that, you know, one thing you have to do is, you know, you have to be creative and you have to make time. And one thing that happens and I talk about this a lot on FOMO sapiens because it, it irritates me is that we were born like every child is creative. Like find me a kid who doesn't know how to like come up with an idea for like an imaginary friend or a wizard or whatever. Right. And then institutions beat it out of us. It's our schools, it's our jobs, it's our culture. And then when you write a book, like you said, yeah, there's research of course, but then like, okay, you have to like imagine this, create a world that is internally consistent. So like, how did you, how did you come up with both the time and the sort of process to be creative? I was a very daydreamy child, and I think Danielle probably was too. Like we, we were daydreamy people. Um, but 
you're right, the world kind of beats it out of you. <laughs> and it sounds really basic, but scheduling time to do it is so important. Um, you know, I think between the two of us, Danielle's more the type A and I'm more the type B. So, but I think she has a very fine sense of scheduling. And I think that was absolutely crucial because you, you just have to create the space and the time. Yeah. And I would say that having two of us made that easier, right? Because if, I imagine if you're a writer writing by yourself, right, you know, it's all on you to create that, you know, sort of make that time for the creativity. But the two of us, we could be each other's cheerleaders. We could get each other excited about it. I mean, I know for me, I used to travel a lot for my job, you know, pre-COVID and I would be sitting in a random restaurant in Tucson, you know, with my laptop open and my glass of wine writing. And that was, you know, sort of almost the, the creative release time for me, right? Because I wasn't getting ready for the presentation the next day and I wasn't on the phone with my boss. I was writing. I also think giving yourself a deadline. Um, mm-hmm. There is nothing like a deadline to make you do something. And you need those. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> now, I, I, it kind of reminds me of like having a co-founder for your startup, right? Because I always tell people like, listen, I totally get if you're a solo founder and you've got your big idea. But I know, for example, that if I started a startup on my own in some product company, like I would really struggle like having that other person to hold me accountable and to just push back mm-hmm. on me. It makes me better. But I'm wondering, you know, it also, when you're talking about a a partnership over this many years, about writing a story where there's so many sort of like little things to think about, and maybe one of you wants the main character to get married, and the other one wants the main character to get hit by a trolley or something, because we're talking like the Victorian age, so I want to keep it appropriate. How did you deal with like, I imagine it wasn't always just like happy, clappy, getting along all the time. I imagine sometimes you had conflict either about deadlines or about content. Like how did you work through the kinks as you went along? A few things helped, I think. Um, One, I feel as though we never took ourselves so seriously that we couldn't sort of step back and be like, hey, this is supposed to be fun. Mm. And that I think was crucial. Um, I also feel like we might, there were times where we wrote almost like competing scenes or we were going in competing directions and we had to have a conversation where like, well, what, what actually makes for the best story? Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it never, it really wasn't ever contentious, but we did have to, to ask ourselves those questions and to go back and forth and, and make compromise. Right. I think I think that taking a step back was critical. And and because the benefit of time is you have a lot of time to step back and think um, because we didn't have an overarching deadline like you have to write this book in a year. Right. Um, all like there were there were times we took two, three months off. Right. I mean, not kidding. And that's a lot of time off. And we'd have to get back to the book, refresh our memories about where we were. But it gave us a chance to really step back and say, do we really want to go this in this direction? And I think that helped. I think, you know, for me, speaking honestly, the biggest points of contention were probably us keeping the ball moving forward. And, um, and there, you know, it was a little bit of me texting, calling, emailing Jenny to be like, we're going we're gonna to make this happen. Come on, let's not lose our focus. Um, you know, but on the, on the converse, you know, for Jenny, every time I would say, you know what, this is just fine. It doesn't have to be perfect. She would be like, no, it has to be better. 
And I think that's where our balance is for each other, right? Me keeping the project going and her her saying, let's try to make this a little bit more atmospheric, a little bit more of a whole story. So that was definitely something that Jenny pushed me on a lot. I like that. Actually, as I think about, you know, your day jobs, right? It fits into the profiles. It's like kind of like, it's like building a management team for your company. You want the person who's the CFO, you want the COO, you want the the product person. And like, Jenny, you are like the product person more and Danielle, you're more like the COO and you come together and like, you can both play in each other's area. I mean, you both contributed, but you had certain areas where you sort of took the lead, which is kind of awesome. So we've been talking a lot about the process. I do want to talk about the book a little bit because, you know, people... You know, we're looking for a like I read the newspaper and I want to jump out a window. I'm looking for something a little escapist to read. And I've been digging into this book and it is awesome. So tell people a little bit about what they're going to get if they read the last season. So I think you are definitely going to get an escape from your everyday reality. So, you know, we when we wrote this book, we thought to ourselves, we want to write the book that we want to read. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of books out there that are historical fiction and that really take themselves seriously, which I mean, they're wonderful. Um, We respect them and appreciate them. And then there's books out there that are true romance, which go to a whole different direction, um, which is not where we absolutely wanted to be. But we wanted to find a story set in a time period that we didn't know very well, that we wanted to dig deep into, that people could learn a lot about. You know, uh, many of our readers have actually like kind of stopped started Googling and looking into this time period to understand more about it because they don't know a lot about it. So that we absolutely wanted to create. But ultimately what it is, is it's the story of a, uh, a young couple. They, they meet as, you know, young teens. They become friends and, uh, you know, they each take different different paths in life and they're brought back together by the, the seminal crisis of the book, which is the crisis of 1873. And, and through that, they, uh, they become closer together. They have a lot of things to get through, but they, they do end up together in the end. I don't think I'm giving anything away, <laughs> uh, but it's, um, it's absolutely the book that I think we wanted to read, which is what we wrote. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a romantic story. As you said, it's an escape in many ways. Um, we wanted to balance, and we hope we did this, balance the sort of need for romantic escape, but also something that a contemporary reader could relate to. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I that is kind of based on what was going on at the time we were writing that we were thinking about and living through um, without giving too much away. There, the, the financial crisis really hurts this one family and fortunes rise and fall and in 2008 and and the aftermath that happened and people had all sorts of emotions about that and really were reeling from it. So we hope we captured some of that. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. 
Now, FOMO sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. I'm curious though, like since you've been writing this for a long time, like society moved a lot and the way that we talk about gender and race and stuff changed a lot in that period of time. Did you have to go back and change things that you were like, you know what, like I have a different viewpoint on this now than I used to. We did upon editing it mm-hmm. because there were lots of edits. So there were ultimately, I think we did two really huge edits, mm-hmm. one a while ago and then, then, um, a couple more recently, I think during our final edits, we were reading it with a different lens. And um, so there are scenes, uh, uh, one of our protagonists goes to India and and makes his sort of fortune in India. And reading those scenes, we were very conscious of how is a modern reader going to look at this scene where it's, it's set during the Victorian era. It's set during a time of colonialism and imperialism and all of that stuff, which, um, you know, is, it was was very hard, horrible things happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet our characters are British. Mm -hmm. So we, we read it with that lens thinking about it. It's so interesting now to think when we were writing it, we didn't have that lens and how that lens really, really changed. Like it just did the lens of the modern reader changed. I mean, the, the view that lens changed, but I would say that interestingly, the people in the industry that we spoke to when we were making these changes did didn't think that we needed to make mm. the changes. We made the changes, right? So they were they said this is a historical fiction novel. This is history. This is what would have happened then. You don't need to revisit it, and we didn't revisit anything. We didn't make it revisionist. Mm-hmm. We didn't make it earlier than it was. We just slightly tweaked it so that. You know, so you don't get canceled. Like if something get canceled, it's gonna be you, not them. Like it's that simple. And and I think like anybody who's creating content now, like stuff ages poorly, and there's some of that's in your control. But thinking a little bit ahead about like, hmm, am I making sure that I'm thinking about where the world is going? It's important because you want your stuff to be relevant going forward. Now, writing a book is something a lot of people want to do. It provokes a ton of FOMO, um, as you can tell. All three of us in high school wanted to write books. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like there's this famous saying, like everybody should write a book, plant a tree and have a baby. And so it's, it's a thing. And, um, but, but it is hard and it's, there's a lot of that. If you separate the FOMO from the reality, it's a really tough process. But for, for folks who are listening today and are inspired and want to do it, what should they know if they're going to do this? I think this is one of the hardest things that we've ever done. Um, And so what I would say is do not give up, right? The the natural inclination is I have an idea. I'm going to write it. I'm going to spend a couple days writing it. I'm on vacation. I'm going to work on it. And then you come home, life sets in, the institution set in, right? And then you just give up. So I think the biggest piece of advice I would say is do not give up because if you have an idea that you love, um, that you really think can go somewhere, you owe it to yourself, to try and and see where it takes you. And don't sort of set yourself up to l- live up to those um, 
icons that you have. You know, you can't be Shakespeare. We can't be Jane Austen as much as we love her. Um, and if you if you sort of set yourself up to write the great American novel or to write the thing that, you know, topples the greats, um, I think you you might not push yourself through it. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think what you're saying, if I thinking about you know, now that we've been in England for the last little bit, think about the words of Winston Churchill. Never give in. Never, never, never. All right. So if you want to read more about this book and buy it, you can go to the website dannyandjenny.com. That's D-A-N-I-A-N-D-J-E-N-N-Y.com. The name of the book is The Last Season. And my guests today were Jenny Jesen and Danielle Mafood. Jenny and Danielle, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. FOMO. Can't get enough of FOMO Sapiens? Join me on Patreon for ad-free episodes, bonus material, and exclusive content that will help you to master FOMO and position yourself for greater success in both business and life. Go to patreon.com slash FOMO Sapiens to learn more. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I love hearing from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrup. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.